14, verse 34, Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us wisdom as we consider the scriptures now in this particular verse, that in this day that has been set aside for fasting, that we would truly humble ourselves recognizing where we are as a nation, where we are as individuals, as a church, as families, that you might move us to repentance and that you might have mercy upon us in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so we'll look at this passage here in Proverbs 14.34 very briefly. First is this word righteousness. He says, righteousness exalteth a nation. This righteousness refers to what is lawful and right, what is just. And as we know from the rest of the Bible, there is a twofold righteousness. There is a justification or an absolute perfect obedience to God by which he declares a sinner to be righteous through faith in Christ. This we call justification or declaring righteousness. This is the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. And there is a secondary righteousness or a uh, uh, striving toward righteousness, which we call sanctification or holiness, growing in grace and knowledge, not perfected in this life. And yet those who are called righteous in the Bible are those who love God's law, who strive to keep it and who more and more grow in conformity to it. And this we call sanctification. And this includes both a individual as well as families, churches, and society in general. Striving after righteousness, God will call that righteousness because a person desires to do his will and does it more and more. Or a nation is a righteous nation because it seeks to do God's will and more and more grows in conformity to it. So that is the righteousness he's talking about, that striving after holiness that is revealed to us in the Bible. And then he says that righteousness does something. It has an action that it performs. When a nation seeks to do what pleases God and strives after it and grows in it, he says that exalts. This means to lift something up on high. When the flood came, the ark was sitting where Noah had built it. And as the flood continued on for 40 days, the ark was exalted. It was lifted up. In other words, it was raised up so that everyone who is in the low parts was destroyed, but everyone on the ark was raised up above the destruction. This is the idea of exalting here. Righteousness raises up, lifts up, and then a nation. Righteousness exalteth a nation. Now, this is an interesting word. The Jews have an insult that they use, or those who... Uh, believe that they're very righteous, will say there are the goyim, those nations, the heathen, or the outsiders. And there's a sense in which the Bible uses that term that way. But here, the word is goy, a nation. Abraham, he was promised that he would be a great nation. He would be a goy, an exalted or a great nation. And then the Egyptians, they're called a nation as well. So this word can be used to the people of God as Abraham's descendants. It can be used of the Egyptians who are outside of God's covenants as heathens or Gentiles. And especially it refers to political bodies or ethnic bodies or uh, even territorial groups of people. The Bible uses it in various ways. Let's turn back to Psalm 33 concerning this exaltation or lifting up of a nation. 
Also of interest, when Moses was going to strike the water so that it would turn into blood, he lifted up his rod. He exalted his rod as God exalts a nation, or righteousness, in this case, exalts a nation. Psalm 33, we'll start at verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught. He maketh the devices of the people of none effect. The counsel of the Lord standeth forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. And let's look down at verse 16. There is no king saved by the multitude of an host. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. An horse is a vain thing for safety. Neither shall he deliver any by his great strength. Behold, the eyes of the Lord, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waiteth for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. Let thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us according as we hope in thee. Now this passage is often just the one verse is quoted. um, And it's a very good verse. It's understandably quoted. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. But the surrounding context helps to fill in what does it mean for a nation to be blessed and to have God as their Lord? What does it mean that they have been chosen for God's inheritance or his heirs? Well, part of it is the fear of God, verse 8 talks about, standing in awe of him, uh, recognizing his creative power, verse 9, and then recognizing that all the counsels that men come up with, all the things that men devise, all the machinations that they have, For this world and for the world to come, God brings them all to nothing. He makes their devices of none effect. God's counsel stands. And this is what it means. When a nation recognizes God's purposes and God's plans and God's commandments and stands in awe of him and his original creation and his holy commandments, such a nation has God for its Lord. And then there's a a second part. That is verses 16 to the end. When kings trust in their multitudes, in their weaponry, in their soldiery, in their stratagems, in their their weapons of warfare, in their great and mighty things that they believe will deliver them, God actually looks down among men and among the nations of the earth to figure out which ones actually hope in me, which ones actually confide in me, and those are the ones that I'll exercise my power for their benefit. This doesn't teach that you shouldn't have horses, that you shouldn't have a host of mighty men, that you shouldn't have swords prepared for battle. None of those things are taught in the Bible. But what it does teach is that we don't trust in the means. We trust in God. We use means, of course. God says that you're to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Does that mean you shouldn't plant your grains so that you can grow for your bread? Of course not. That's ridiculous. So we should have means, we should have kings or judges, we should have horses, we should have soldiery, etc. But when we have all those things, we don't trust in those things. We trust in God's power. And this is part of what it means to have God for our Lord, is God is looking out and saying, whatever nation hopes in my mercy, I will be with them according as they hope in me.
And that's what verse 22 is about. So if our nation says, God bless America, and we use all the means for national security and defense, and yet we don't hope in God, we hope in our machinations and our plans and our purposes and our weaponry, that's the sort of nation that God despises and that he will not bless, that he will judge constantly. So we can't hope in God's mercy unless we humble ourselves and recognize it's his purposes that stand forevermore. We're to fear and tremble before him, and that actually is the key. Okay, so here we have righteousness exalting a nation in Solomon, and here we have in the Psalms the celebration that there is a blessing on the nation who fears God and who serves him. So I note then this observation that any political, ethnic, or territorial group that seeks God's righteousness, both in the gospel and the law, in their personal and in their civil life, will be carried upward by God. That's the idea. Just like the ark was carried upward by the waters of the flood, just as Moses exalted his rod before he struck it on the waters to turn them to blood, so righteousness will lift up a nation out of degradation, out of poverty, out of lawlessness, out of destruction, as people fear the Lord and walk in his ways. So in light of this, first thing, first way to use this doctrine is to repent of our unrighteousness, of our ungodliness. Let us trust in Christ's righteousness in the gospel. And then, as again, there's a twofold righteousness in the gospel. Trusting in Christ's righteousness, being reconciled to God, let us, in sanctification, pursue holiness, growing in grace and in knowledge, seeking to be submissive to God in all of his commandments. As Isaiah said, this is the fast that God has chosen, that you loose the bands of wickedness, that you don't bring the poor into slavery, that you give and deal your bread to him, and that you keep my Sabbath. Two commandments basically encompassing the whole of the two tables of the law. Let us seek first God's righteousness and God's kingdom. And a second use, not just repenting and turning from sin and acknowledging those sins to God, confessing the sins, but also seeking conformity of our lives to the standards that God has revealed. Righteousness is conformity to God's standards. What he has declared to be right, we say amen. What he has said to be evil, we say amen. And when we fail to either do what he's commanded or we do what he has forbidden us, we repent and we ask for forgiveness and we seek by God's grace more and more to conform ourselves in our desires, in our priorities, in how we use our time, our talents, our energies. What are the things that God loves? I am to love those too. What are the things that God hates? I am to hate those too. So it's conforming ourselves and that's what righteousness is. And then the third use here of this observation is on this day of fasting and prayer to remember what the scriptures have taught us. Remember what our Lord said. They could not do the commission God gave them. Why? Because they were crooked and perverse like we are. They were unbelieving and they needed to humble and afflict their souls by prayer and fasting in order to uh, repent and turn from those things. That's the sort of fast the Lord has chosen. We're to do the Lord's work with the attitude that the Lord commands of us, which is one of humility. We recognize that with the apostles, we can't actually do what he's commissioned us. That's what they should have recognized. We need your power, Christ, to help us. And that's what a day of fasting and prayer is all about. Okay, and then back to 
Proverbs 14, where he says, sin is a reproach to any people. Proverbs 14.34. Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And this word sin just means missing the mark. God has a bullseye, and you're to shoot for that bullseye. And you keep, and I keep shooting off the target. God says, here, we say no over here. And then God has a pathway. Walk in this pathway. This is the way of righteousness, and we're walking over here and over here and maybe backwards. So that is sin. And that's what he says is a reproach. This is a rather interesting term. It can mean a wicked thing. It can mean when you're a refugee running from your homeland, you're ashamed and pushed out of your land. But this idea of reproach is like a humiliation. You're cursed. You're under, whether personally or publicly, whether as an individual or family, you're under some kind of reproach from God, God's providence, or your enemies reproach you and push you out of your land. Um, Your conscience reproaches you and strikes you and says you shouldn't have done that. But sin here, he says, is a reproach to any people. Uh, These are people united together under one common government. Here it's used as a parallel term for nation or goy. This is the two manner of nations. Remember when our mother Rebecca had the two twins in her womb? They were two manner of people and nations. It's two words that were used here. Same two words. A people gathered together under a common form of government, a nation, a political group, or ethnic group. Let's open to Ezra chapter 7, verse 23. Uh, This is a heathen magistrate that we're going to read his words, very interesting words. This is at the time when he's funding the work of the temple, the house of God, Artaxerxes is. Ezra chapter 7, we'll look at verse 23, concerning the reproach of any people for their sins. Verse 23, whatsoever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be diligently done for the house of the God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? Okay, so here Artaxerxes is talking to Ezra and the priests and he's saying, I want you guys to do something and that is whatsoever is commanded by the God of heaven. Look to the law. What does he command you? That's what I want you to do. And I don't want you just to do it in a perfunctory way. That's where you just kind of follow the steps, you know, check the box. Okay, yeah, I did that. Yeah, I did that. But he says to do it diligently. Let it be done diligently. And diligence has to do with your delight in a thing, your love for it, and therefore the affection with which you do it, with all your might, as opposed to, eh, if I have time, I'll get around to it, or I'll do it just because I have to. No, diligence says, I delight in this thing, and therefore I do it with all my might. And so he commands them, do what God said, and everything that God said, and do it with the right attitude, that of diligence. And do it for the house of the God in heaven, or the God of heaven. And this, of course, is they're rebuilding the temple. That was the place where God said, you're to worship me. He gave them specific orders about building it, what it was supposed to look like, the size of it, etc. And then what was to be done in it. 
So it concerns especially the worship of God. God is in heaven. He is ruling over all. And so he's thinking, our tax is thinking correctly, my kingdom must submit to his. I have to see that he is honored in his house. It's his house where he dwells. He's there and you're worshiping him as he sits upon that throne in the mercy seat. And then he asks the question, why should there be wrath against the realm? This is the reproach that Solomon talked about. The wrath of God bringing reproach upon a people, shaming a people, and bringing them, even as Paul says, to degradation in their sexual ethics, in their worship, in their personal lives. God gave them over to a reprobate mind. That is the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And so the king says, I want God's wrath turned away from my realm and against my sons. So he's thinking long-term down the line. There's going to be a succession of my sons who sit upon my throne. I don't want the wrath of God against them, nor do I want it against myself. So there needs to be a diligent keeping of whatever God has commanded concerning his house where he is worshipped. And then, of course, in the surrounding context, our taxers make sure that the house of God is provided for. He makes sure that the ministers are taken care of so that they can freely do the things that God has commanded them to do. So this is a great example of a, a nation, even a heathen nation, recognizing there is a God who lives in heaven. We must do what he says. And if we don't, there will be shame. There will be reproach. There will be a curse. And so just an observation, the curse and wrath and reproach that come from God are, are upon a people because of their sin. So this reproach, sin is a reproach to any people because it brings God's judgment. It brings his wrath, provokes his anger. Sin is a transgression of God's law. And whether it's done privately or publicly, whether by an individual or family or a church or a civil body, it provokes God to anger. And the more mercy God has shown to someone the greater the provocation of that sin. So if people have tremendous amounts of light, as Israel did, as compared to the Babylonians, then when Israel sins, God takes it more seriously because they had more light. Like They're accountable. The servant who knew his master's will is beaten with many stripes, whereas the servant who didn't know his master's will, he still gets beaten. But the measure of his knowledge is the increase of his punishment. And so a nation that has light as we do, we have Bibles, you can go to Walmart and you could literally see several different versions of the Bible and you could buy it for extremely cheap and everyone has access to it on their phones who has a phone, they can see the Bible there for themselves. There's preaching that occurs in churches, you can hear the word of God, you can listen to Christian radio stations, they'll even have scripture verses that'll come through in the music sometimes or scripture messages that come through, it's all over the place. We have a tremendous amount of light. Then you go back in the history of America and you look at the light that we had at one time, I was reading um, John Adams and his proclamation for a fast day for the whole United States. And if you look at the amount of light of the president of the United States, it's really tremendous. Mm. So our sins provoke God, and the more mercy God has shown to us, the more they provoke him. So in use of this, let us examine our ways. 
let us examine our ways and justify God's judgments. We don't actually have it as bad as we deserve. God has judged us, but there's certainly a lot more that we deserve that we have not received as of yet. We deserve worse than we've received from his hands. Our light is tremendous. Our blessings are innumerable. Our grumbling is unwarranted. And therefore, our reproach goes up and up because the sin is greater. When the light is greater, the reproach then is greater and the judgment will be severe. Use two of this doctrine is to discern the curses of God. Many people will say, well, if we allow these things to go on, then God will judge us for that. And that's partially correct. But the thing itself that's going on is part of the judgment. When God gives people over to a reprobate mind to do those things that are not fitting, when we're filled with all unrighteousness, when we celebrate evil and take pleasure in them that do evil, not just doing it ourselves, but delighting in seeing others do it, God says that is a judgment. We're already under his judgment. And there are curses upon curses, because when the first curse comes, you're supposed to repent. And if you don't, then another one comes to follow it up. And that's where we're at right now. Why do things get worse and worse? Well, because we have not repented of the prior sins that led to the first curse that led to this one. So on this day of fasting and prayer, the Lord says, judgment begins in the house of God. Those who profess to know the Lord, those who actually do know the Lord, those who are united by faith to Christ, those are the house and people of God. Judgment has to begin there, Peter says. Because if the ungodly and the wicked man and sinner, you know, the righteous will scarcely be saved, what will happen to those over there? Well, there's really no hope. So we must repent of our sins if we would be a blessing to our nation. Let us rend our hearts and not our garments and turn unto the Lord our God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. This is from Joel 2.13. Have we adopted worldly philosophies? Thinking like unbelieving people. That's what a worldly philosophy is. I think like the world thinks. I don't think like God thinks. And this is so subtle that the, the apostles themselves are chargeable with this sin. They don't believe they're crooked and perverse, he says. So that means if they were in that condition, what are we in? We're in the same boat. We adopt worldly ways of thinking. We adopt the philosophies of men, the priorities of men. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Wherewithal shall we be clothed? Those are the priorities of the Gentiles. It's kind of like animal priorities. And our Lord says that you ought to concern yourself not with those things, but with this. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things. I'll take care of that. You have to trust that if you seek my things, I'll look after your things. Them that honor me, I will honor. And them that dishonor me will be lightly esteemed. We have to trust that that's actually the case. And that's true individually, as families, as churches. That's also true as nations, that we have to trust that if we seek his kingdom first, then he'll look after the other things that we're so concerned about. But these are worldly priorities. This is a worldly mindset. Do our thoughts reflect God's thoughts? What about our usage of time? 
what do we read when we have extra time? We all have things we have to take care of. We all have basic <coughs> duties. But when we have extra time, what consumes it? What consumes our minds and our eyes and our ears and our hands? What are we doing with ourselves? How do we expend our energy? What do we pour our energy into? What really gets us excited? And that's what the king said. When you go to the house of God, do it diligently. Let this be your love, the thing that you love to do. Let it be that thing. Where is our treasure? That's where our heart, uh, wherever we think is valuable, whatever we think is important, that's where our energies and our affections and our doings will be. Now, for myself, could I sit and watch a movie? Sure. I could sit there for hours watching movies. Could I get myself to pray for 15 minutes? Probably not. So where are my priorities? Where's my energy? Well, that's a sin on my part. I don't have, and there's nothing wrong with recreations, but the level of love, what is the thing that you love? What is the thing you delight in? What is the thing that I delight in? I'm sad to say, and must repent, that my energies are not poured into the things that matter the most and that are pleasing to the Lord. They're perhaps spent more on frivolities or trivial things, things that may have their place and their time, but are not really that great to get excited about. You see this also in the apostles. This is, again, an encouragement that we are not alone, that we all struggle with the same thing. Jesus is there agonizing, getting ready to go to the cross, sweating drops of blood. And what are the apostles doing? And, you know, if I were there, what would I be doing? Snoozing, same thing. I might be in the same condition. So this is a reminder for us that when we have a day where you don't partake of your ordinary fare, it's hard because our energies, it's a reminder, it's a wake-up call. Our energies are spent on things to no profit. What about the Christian Sabbath? The uh, church fathers had a saying that the, they said, look, in the Old Testament, God didn't say that the worship was less. He actually doubled their workload. So you go into the temple, morning and evening, they offer sacrifice. Okay? On the Sabbath, what do they do? Twice. They double up. They do more on the Sabbath in the worship of God than on others, other days. And so the worship of God, the delighting in the knowledge of God, the ordinances of worship, you just check it off. Well, tip my time to God. I've gone, done my thing. Now I'll do my own thing. And this is a formality, an externalism, like Isaiah talks about. You say you want to go to the ordinances of worship and you want to hear the word of the Lord. But then at the end, he says, here's the true fast. First, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Second, honor the Lord on his day. Remember what Isaiah 58 starts with. It's with fasting and prayer and people who profess to know the Lord and say they want to know his word. And yet, where is it? Where's the obedience to both tables of the law? It's not going to be perfect, but is it growing? Is it sincere? Is it repentant? Okay, and then final use here. Let us on this day of fasting hope in the mercy of God. Remember the Lord said he's gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger and of great kindness and repenteth him of the evil. I think back in the books of the kings, you have the, one of the worst kings is King Ahab. And God threatens to destroy him. And then Ahab puts on sackcloth and he fasts. And God actually doesn't destroy him. The thing that God said he would do. 
he puts it off and says, okay, I'm, mm. I'm going to give you a reprieve. You, wicked, godless, idolatrous king, married to Jezebel, and all the evil he did to the prophets, God heard him in his fasting and spared his kingdom? That's pretty remarkable. So if we are believers in Jesus Christ, if we've been reconciled to God by faith, if we with the apostles have these struggles with unbelief and even these evil deeds, will God hear us when we cry to him and fast? Yes, he will. He's a God of mercy. We're not hoping in our fasting. We don't hope in our faith. We don't believe in our believing. We believe in Christ. We believe in the good news that God is slow to anger. And when we repent, repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of his sin. So when we repent, when we fast, when we pray as the apostles were commanded to do, we have to do it in the light of God's mercy because we can't beg God, well, I've done all these good things. You now owe me this payback. No, that's not our hope. Fasting and prayer is not a satisfaction for sins. You can't go with the Pharisee and say, look, God, I've, I do all this fasting here. I give all my tithes. I'm not like this publican over here. That man went down to his house under the wrath of God, whereas the publican he was condemning went down justified because he begged for God to be merciful to him as a sinner. So our life is not going to be good enough to measure up to say, give me these things because of the good that I've done. Christ's life, that's exactly what he prays. Look at these good things that I have done. I always do what the Father commands me. I always do what pleases the Father. And therefore the Father loveth me, he said, because I always do what is pleasing to him. That's why we are united to Christ. That's why we believe in him. We don't believe in our fasting. So when we fast, when we repent, our hope does not move one inch from being settled on Christ himself in whom we have redemption through his blood. And yet the Lord calls us to use this means to recognize the danger of our own lives, of our families, of the nation in which we live, of the Commonwealth of Virginia, the church as a whole, that we are in a, pl- a place of reproach because of our sins and that we must repent of them and sincerely beg God to have mercy and begin to do what he has commanded us to do. And thus far the consideration of Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34.